Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. I wanted to mention a Latin phrase that I heard this very week, or I saw this very week yesterday. I didn't even put it in the notes because it hadn't, it came up after I wrote the notes. It's a phrase we've talked about earlier, but you might not remember. And that is the phrase, it's pronounced in Latin, sine die, that is S-I-N-E space D-I-E, sine die, but you often hear it pronounced in English by people who know nothing about Latin. They don't even probably know it's Latin. They say sine die. <laughs> Any of you ever heard that phrase? Anybody know what it means? What does sine mean? Does anybody remember the word sine? Without. Yes. So sine die really means without a day. Okay, and it means without setting a day or without setting a time for the next thing. And so uh, sometimes you'll hear politicians say, um, we're going to have a a meeting about this or or, or we're having a meeting about this today. And the next meeting will be sine die. You know, we don't know when we haven't established it. Um, One of our delegates up here is resigning. And she said the legislative session is over. And the next time I'll vote is sine die or something like that, she said, uh, which means no day established. She's quitting. She won't be on it anymore. Um, And so you'll see that phrase sometimes, especially in connection with political meetings. Uh, My my phone called it sine die. Sine die. Yeah. um, (laughs) When I was appointed to the board of the Maryland School for the Blind, which I served on for a little while, one of the state senators swore me in or whatever. And I remember he used it of a meeting. We're going to have a meeting pretty soon about something sine die. I don't remember now what the meeting even was, but I heard him use it. That's when I cringed when I heard his pronunciation. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's, uh, that's it. Uh, so you might see that phrase sometimes. And it seems to me there was something in, oh, hello, Carla. There she is. I knew she'd be along with us. Carla, we're just talking about the phrase sine die, which English people, people in America pronounce sine die, which means without setting a day, without a day being set. You might have heard that. That's about all we've talked about today. So okay. Far. Yeah, I just got in from school. <laughs> That's what you missed. That's all you missed. So you didn't miss too much. Um, now, uh, what I want to do today, I want to go over. We talked about uh, Latin numbers last week, and we talked about Roman numerals. And, you know, yes, we did. I was trying to think if we did those exercises. I did. Did we go over? Uh, I'm trying to think if we went over those exercises I gave you to do. Did the Roman week. numeral ones. We did. Okay. Yes, we, we did. did. Okay. And I think we did the declensions too. Come think of. Okay. So we got nothing left over from last week. We got a whole new set of notes for this week. I want to talk about Greek numbers, and I want to talk about the third declension neuter nouns, which won't take too long, and I want to uh, touch on, uh, I want to read a couple more poems by Catullus later on, we won't do that today, but in order to do that, I've got some sentences to help you learn the vocabulary that you will need to read those poems, so we'll be working on those just a bit. And I want to spend most of the time today going over the mythology because we've been neglecting our mythology and we have not, we keep touching on it and we don't get anywhere in it. So uh, I want to do a little bit with that. 
and spend a lot of time with that. So anyway, let's talk about numbers. You remember the Latin numbers? And you had them last week. Unus, duo, tres, quator, quinque, sex, septem, octo, noem, decem. And we've had them uh, several times. But I thought that I would like to go over the Greek numbers simply because of the derivatives that they offer us in English and simply because of the way they work with the metric system. So most of these numbers you might not ever see again, uh, except in derivatives. So the number for one in Greek is heis for the masculine, mia for the feminine, hen for the neuter. So if you wanted to say one man, you would say heis. If you wanted to say one girl, you'd say mia. Etc. Okay. Um, the rest of them uh, are pretty much, uh, some of them are similar to Latin. Duo, two is duo. A three is trace, spelled uh, tau, rho, epsilon, iota, sigma. So it's spelled a little funny. Trace. Four is tetares. Five is pente. You've heard that one before. Six uh-huh. is hex. Seven hepta, eight octo, nine enea, and ten deca. Okay, so I'm just going to repeat these again, and you can repeat them after me if you want to. Hace is one, duo, tres, hace, duo, tres, tetares, pente, hex, hepta, octo, enea, deca. 11 is hendeka, by the way, which is a combination of the neuter of heis, mia, hen, and deka, meaning 10. So hendeka is 11. Dodeka is 12. That's a combination of duo and deka and 10. Dodeka. Thrace chi deka, 13. And the rest of these, chi in Greek means and. So the rest of these up to 20 are 3 and 10, 4 and 10. So trace chi deka, tetrace chi deka, pente chi deka, etc. Until you get to 20. And 20 is Akosi. Akosi. Say it again. Akosi. 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 Um, 30 is Triaconta. <laughs> triaconta. And the rest of them um, uh, up to 100 work the same way. Tetraconta, Penteconta. Hexaconta, etc., all the way up to 100. 100 is hecatone. And we'll talk about some of these. A lot of these have English derivatives. Hecatone is 100. Um, diacosioi. Diacosioi is 200. These are all in your notes, by the way. Diacosioi is 200. Uh, kilioi is 1,000. Kilioi. And diskilioi is 2,000, and murioi is 10,000. Now, um, I give you an exercise on some of these and where you can see what derivatives we get. Like one I want to go over right now is, just to give you an idea, is pentagon. That's a word we hear all the time. Uh-huh. What, is, what is a pentagon or what is the pentagon? A five-sided five-sided building. Yeah. Okay, a five-sided, five-sided building. building or a five-sided figure, really. But but yes, in particular, the Pentagon is a five-sided building. Where is it? In Washington, D.C.? No. I thought so, Beth, but I looked Arlington, it up. Arlington. It's in Virginia. 
Yeah, it's in Virginia. And what is what happens in that Ooh. Pentagon? What happens in the Pentagon? War stuff. Yeah, it's the chief, the uh, <laughs> the um, the um, Joint Chiefs of Staff, and all meet there. All are, all the all the government officials that are the the service people, and. In Washington, of course, the those joint chiefs of staff and all make up what is called the Pentagon. And that's why, because of that building down in Virginia, I guess where they are uh, is where, where why that's done, why it's called that. But you can see Pentagon. There we are. And, and I've given you some other derivatives here, which we'll go over next week. Now, we the reason see, we also, also see the word. We also see the word pentagram. Yes, um, what is a pentagram? It is a five-sided um, geometric figure, kind of like. Yep. Okay, it is. It is. And, of course, you see uh, things like trigonometry, which is one of the ones I also tell you in your exercise. Trigonometry would be, what, three-sided? The mm -hmm. gun... Uh, the the uh, gone thing is sides or dimensions. Uh, now, the reason that I'm bothering with these numbers at all, aside from the derivatives, is because of the metric system. And you probably already, and by the way, the metric system is an interesting thing to talk about even on its own. I don't know, those of you that are my age, and I'm 70, will remember maybe that in about 19, 1977, that's when I started teaching, there was a big furor that the country was going to go to the metric system. Do you remember mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. and, and yes, I remember. And I dreaded it because I was so bad at math. My math teacher said, well, it's a lot easier than the English system. And I didn't buy that. Well, it actually is. Mm -hmm. It is. Mm -hmm. oh, yes, I it actually is. But, but yes, but they were teaching you. They used to remember the big, big buzz phrase they used to use. Think metric. That's what they yeah. would do. And so, like, for example, one of the first faculty meetings I was ever in, uh, first uh, in-service day meetings, they had this woman come and she brought meter sticks in and showed us meter sticks so we could get an idea of how a meter was compared to how a yard was. And uh, she had us measure things and try to get the idea of what it's going to be like when we really go to the metric system and don't have feet and inches anymore and that kind of thing. Well, of course, you know what happened. It never <laughs> happened. It just mm -hmm. never happened for whatever reason. And I honestly don't know why, because my, my father-in-law was in business, and he said, for people that make machinery and that sort of thing, the metric system was what was the best thing going. I mean, that's what people were using. So, But it never happened. Um, never happened. However, if you do physics or if you do almost any kind of measurement or math or anything like that the metric system is easy because it's all on a you know multiples of 10 and in in the metric system greek and latin play a big part and if you know this rule it makes the metric system a lot easier and you probably already learned this rule we learned it in physics class but uh, if you didn't take physics you might find it helpful and that is Latin numbers in the metric system, like deci, centi, and milli, represent fractions. Okay, so like a decimeter is a tenth of a meter. 
mm-hmm. or a centimeter is a hundredth of a meter, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the Greek numbers, the Greek numbers, Dessa, and by the way, I want to I explain to you, um, when I wrote these Greek numbers, I used what the normal Greek equivalents of these letters are, as I've done before with you. But when the numbers are used, they use C instead of K, for example. So even though I told you 10 was D-E-K-A, when you do it in the metric system, it's usually D-E-C-A. So Dessa, Deca, Heca, H-E-C-A, again, the K changing to C. Heca, meaning 100, and Kilo, meaning 1,000. They're using a K instead of the C-H, which is, in Greek, it's a chi. And so, uh, so just remember, deca is 10, and that means you're multiplying by 10. Heca is 100, you're multiplying by 100. And kilo is 1,000, you're multiplying by 1,000. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a gram, you know what a gram is? Well, a, a decagram would be 10 grams. Mm-hmm. Uh, a hecagram would be 100 grams. A kilogram would be 1,000 grams. Okay. And so I just thought that's kind of helpful if you know that as you're doing your metric system stuff, if any of you have to do it, it's kind of helpful to know when you hear centimeter, you know, right away, we're talking about a a hundredth of a meter or if you're heck a meter, we're talking about a hundred meters. So that's kind of helpful. That's why I bothered with it. Very helpful. Thank you. At least, I uh, have a question. Um, mm-hmm. When we were going through this, I noticed the similarity of some of the um, numbers. Is this because these are all derivatives of the inner, um, you know, the same language? Indo-European. You know, Indo-European language. I would say branch. so, but I would say that probably the Greek. I would say the Latin in all in a lot of times the Latin comes from the Greek in in some case in many cases like okay. duo duo it's the same thing except written yeah. one's written in Greek letters one's written in Roman letters but it's the same word trace yeah. very similar yeah very similar because I was wondering if they had the Indo-European roots because they're right. not Romance language you know Greek is. I don't know. Um, you know, I, and so keep Greek in mind, I was romance. taught. You're right. And, yeah, I was romance. taught uh, from a linguistic um, standpoint, right. is that, and so I had a little different orientation mm-hmm. than you. And I'm finding this very fascinating. By the I don't way, know what Greek is, Carla? That's a very interesting thing. Uh, maybe Greek is like a Semitic or a Syrian yeah, language. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a different group. But it's I a different remember. group. But you are exactly know what right it is. about that. I yeah, and know I know what it know. is, but I'm wondering if they, since they came from the inner Europe. Indo-European tree, you know. Yeah. Yep. Well, you yep. know what I found fascinating? I took Russian for a year in high school. And that's one of the uh, Balto-Slavics. Russian is nothing, has nothing to do with Latin, really. No, it really. doesn't. Okay. However, the verb to be, if you want to say he, she, or it is in Russian, it's yes, if they use it. Now, sometimes they leave it out. Mostly they leave it out. If you really want to emphasize, they use yes, which is yes. yeah. S- what's S called? Ninette. Sa, sa, S. So it's spelled just about like est in Latin. Uh, We say sunt in Latin, in Russian, if they use it, they say suit. Now that just seems funny to me that they're so similar. Well, I'm just thinking that's probably the Indo-European variant, even though it's a a Slavic branch, it's different. Yep. Yep. Uh, For example, another thing that's weird, the the dative pronoun, you know, Russian has cases like Latin. Yes, it does. Well, in Latin to say to me, you say me, he. 
In Russian, you say "minya." Mm-hmm. Now that's weird. That's close. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not exactly the same, but it's it, it's shaking hands. You might say. Right. Uh, so I found that very interesting. Now, there, of course, there are an awful lot of words totally different, but I found that interesting. Uh, and I don't know. You know, I don't. I think that Indo-European, they're just somewhere. They go back to the. They go, they back, go back to, to a common branch. language yes. somewhere. Yeah, and um, so that you know, that's how I studied these things as a linguist. You know, from a linguistic point of view. Yeah, well, and it's it's fascinating to do it that way. By the way, they say that <laughs> my sister took uh, was a linguistics major, linguistics in Spanish, and she said her linguistics professor said, "If you know anybody who's a Latin teacher, they hate linguistics." Which which is not true. I don't hate linguistics, but they don't look at. I think linguists look at language a lot different than than we who do classical languages, perhaps. I don't know exactly why, but because uh, we look at the mechanics more, you know. I guess. It's, I um, and um, you know, I'm more into the, the the conjugations and just the mechanics of the language that I am the right. literature, mm-hmm. you know, the structures and things. I mean, I, I get off on technical translating. Technical translating is my favorite kind of translating, believe it or not. And that's where the money is, too, by the way, I bet you. I mean, that's where if you know how to technically translate. Firms will pay you to translate things for them. And that, that's, you know, that's good. Um, I was going to say something about linguistics. Oh, I know. I'm interested, Gary. This is Musi. Mm-hmm. I'm interested how so many languages are either feminine, you know, masculine or neuter. It's like a tree could be feminine in one language and masculine. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's very interesting too, isn't it? And why? You know, what causes? Know. It? In some cases, it's the ending of the word, but um, not always. I see. Um, for like example, we call ships. He, we call ships. She. Right. And why? Because and, somehow and get this in to... German, the word for a girl is neuter, das Mädchen. <laughs> and it's because of the hien ending when mm-hmm. you use, you know, mm-hmm. das Mädchen. Mm-hmm. But even das Mädel, you know what I mean? And das Fräulein, you know what I mean? Because of the line ending. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting in Latin, there are... We're going to learn this next week because we're going to do adjectives next week or, well, whenever we get through this lesson, probably next week. Um, most nouns that end in U.S. are masculine, second declension. Most nouns that end in A are feminine, as you remember. However, there are four nouns that end in A, which look feminine, but are masculine. And the reason for it is because they all refer to male, what they thought of as male occupations. And that is poet, sailor, inhabitant, which could be either male or female, and farmer. And those words, because in those days, there weren't too many female poets. There's one in Latin and there's one in Greek. Uh, Sailor, no women sailors, no women farmers. So those words, even though they look feminine, are really masculine. Hmm. So that's kind of an interesting little twist. But Hmm. I think one of the funniest versions of gender, like you were talking about, is in Latin, there's a word, we are twos which is third declension, which means manliness, courage, bravery. And it turns out to be a feminine word. So it's kind of funny. Uh, Hmm. I wish there was an easy way to do gender. You you just have to learn it a lot of times. Mm -hmm. 
I have my, you know, my students are mostly sighted. I have them color code. I say, okay, and um, you do, um, you buy pink for a woman. So you have a four colored pen, pink or red for feminine, blue for masculine Mm. and green for neuter. That's how Uh it helps them remember things. And I have them do all their exercises and everything. And it really helps them. Mm-hmm. And of course, if they'll use the L or the La or the, well, in Latin doesn't have that, but in Spanish and the ending of the word, like, you know, Chica versus Chica. Oh, yeah, we do that. We do that too. But there are some things you can't tell. No, you can't. You so. can't sometimes. That's right. In French, when I took French, we had pages and pages of gender exercises, you know, where they would say like, fille, and then they would give you the answer, la fille. They give you a sentence. And you'd have to fill it in, and uh, that's and then they try to give you rules, but it's it's just something you have to learn by using it, and that's about all you can do. Okay, well, we're going to talk about neuter nouns today. Last week we talked about masculine and feminine nouns of the third declension. This time we're going to put, talk about neuter nouns. They're not very hard. They're exactly like neuter nouns of the second declension in that the nominative and accusative will be alike. And the nominative and accusative plural will end in A. However, they will not end in U-M like they did in second declension. They will end in all kinds of things, sometimes in U-S even, which will make them look like a second declension nominative, but sometimes in other things. Okay, and we'll look at this. And there are two types of neuter nouns. There are regular neuter nouns and I-stem neuter nouns. Here are the regulars. You have opus. Opus means work. And notice that, again, if you know the genitive, you do the rest of the declension like it. So the genitive of opus is I'll be with you. Opris? Wait wait a minute. I'll be right with you. Where did I write that? I don't know. Somebody just handed me a note. That's all. Okay. Um, I'm back. <clears throat> opus. I'm sorry. I interrupted him for a minute. Um, opus uh, goes operis, opery, opus, opere. So notice the nominative and accusative are the same. Okay. Then opera, neuter plural, ends in A. Operum, operibus, opera, operibus. By the way, opera comes from this word. Opera means a whole bunch of works which tell a story. Like opera is made up of a whole bunch of different songs. So that's where you get uh, that's where you get that word from. Opera. Also there is a an expression in Latin and in English with this word a magnum opus. This is a magnum opus meaning a masterpiece. Uh, and you sometimes even hear that in English. And, of course, some of you who lived in 1966 or 19, yeah, I guess it was 66, remember the song by the Four Seasons called Opus 17. Remember that song? I mean, like that. Anyway, um, that means 17th work, 17th work. Now, I stem nouns. There are only a few of these. I could only think of three. They end in either A-L A-R or A-R-E in the nominative, and they have I-A in the nominative and accusative plural. They have I-U-M in the genitive plural and I in the ablative singular. And that's really weird. You have never seen a third declension noun yet that has I in the ablative singular, but now you do. And the word we have for our sample is mare, meaning C. So we say 
Mare, Morris, Mari, Mare, Mari. Now you see why they have ablative in the in the uh, uh, I and the ablative, because otherwise it will be like the accusative. Mare, Morris, Mari, Mare, Mari, then Maria, Marium, Maribus, Maria, Maribus. And we get the word marine and so forth. Well, let's look at the new vocab of these neuter nouns. Corpus, corpus means body. And can anyone think of a derivative we get from this word? Corpse. Corpse, yes, corpse. <laughs> Uh, and that can mean a, like, group, a body of men. Like what else, Beth? Corporal, like corporal, corporal, punishment. corporal punishment means they're punishing your body by hitting you. Oh. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, also, you might have heard of the town Corpus Christi. Corpus Christi, body of Christ. Yep. There you are. Yeah. So, uh -huh. A lot of derivatives from that. And of course, habeas corpus. You can see the neuter on that one. You may have your body. Mm -hmm. And take it where you want. People, if they arrest you, they've got to tell you what you're accused of, or you may have your body and take it where you want. Mm. Corporation. Okay. Corporation. Yes, I'll buy again, a body of people. And mm -hmm. along with that, Ninette mm -hmm. is incorporate, mm -hmm. you know, to bring and, into and, the body or to a body. And corporate. Yep, corporate. So you got a lot of uh, derivatives from this word. A lot of Why do they call a corporal in the army, though? Um, why do they call him a corporal? <laughs> um, because he, I think it has to do with the fact he's in charge of a body of men, is why. And I guess corporalis would really mean relating to a body of men. And, of course, he would be the, in charge of them. A corpuscle. Oh, okay, because... Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, ask you that. Oh, wait a minute, Beth, what were you saying? I was just going to say a corporal is just one step above a private. Yeah. Is that right? I didn't know that. But, he, but, but it means uh -huh. pertaining to a body. So uh, he would be in charge of a body of men. And I guess better than a, better than a private who wouldn't be in charge of anything. <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. <laughs> Corpuscle. When you put L-E on a word, it means a small one. For example, mm -hmm. cor for a corpuscle means a small body. Mm -hmm. And like you have these corpuscles in your blood, they're like little tiny bodies. Mm -hmm. Muscle. Mm -hmm. Muscle comes from the word moose because, and it means a little mouse, because when you flex your muscle, people used to think it looked like little mice running up and down your arm. <laughs> and that's why they call them muscles. So it's the same no. idea. Flumen fluminus means river. You see, the only derivative I can think of right offhand of this is flume. Uh, you sometimes see the word flume, which has to do with rivers. Or uh, there was a ride, I think, at Hershey Park called a flume ride where you get wet because it runs down into to the, to water. Like uh, Here's a very strange looking word. Iter is the nominative. Itineris is the genitive. It means journey. And Iter facere is an idiom meaning to make a journey. And a magnum iter is a forced march. And by the way, to the Romans, a forced march was marching 25 miles. Is this where you also get itinerant teacher? Yep. 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 Itinerant teacher is a teacher who journeys, who travels from place to place. Mm -hmm. And you also get your itinerary. Oh, okay. If you go on a trip, what is your itinerary? Mm -hmm. It's You're your plan. Yeah. 
of where you're going. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Nomen, means name. Nomenclature is the terms by which you refer to something. For example, mm -hmm. uh, for example, uh, you know, bow and stern and port and starboard. That's the, that's nautical nomenclature, the way you talk mm -hmm. about the sea. Mm -hmm. The Romans had a character in politics called a nomenclator, N-O-M-E-N-C-L-A-T-O-R, meaning a name caller. Mm -hmm. And what he would do, if I was running for an office, he would stand right behind me. <laughs> and when I got ready to shake hands with Carla, he'd whisper in my ear, Carla. <laughs> and then I would say, oh, hello, Carla. How are you? Oh, <laughs> so the next person I saw, Moosey, it would say, Moosey. Yeah, I oh, hello, Moosey. How are you? I, I was wasn't one of those people. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of helpful, wouldn't it? That, yeah, that, it would. For us, especially for us Blinkos to have. Yeah, and then nominate would come. You name somebody. Yep, you, you name somebody. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Quit S Tibby No Man means what's your name? We learned that way back in earlier Latin. For the word nominal? Nominal meaning, yes, meaning it's a nominal law, a law in name only, but it's really not in effect mm -hmm. or it's not being enforced, whatever. Or a nominal something. It means in name, yeah, but it's not really happening. Mm -hmm. Opus opus work, we just talked about that one. And a magnum opus is a masterpiece. Tempus temporis means time. Uh, we get the word temporal. Something that's temporal only lasts for, a, for the time we have here, but something that's eternal lasts forever. So temporal means eternal. Uh, tempus fugit, you might have heard that phrase, means time flies. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other derivatives. Uh, Wait a minute. What did you say temporal means eternal? It sounded like you just said temporal means eternal. No, no, no. I said temporal and eternal are opposites. I so know. Temporal you, is for the time being, whereas eternal means it lasts right. forever. Right, and then at the end of that, you said something that didn't oh, sound well, like Oh, well, if I did, I apologize. I didn't mean to say that. Is it part of contemporary, too? Con yep, contemporary means at the same time, con together, temporary pertaining to time, so they're at the same time. So if you and I are contemporaries, we lived at the same time, pretty much. Okay, I stems, you only got three. Animal, animalis, three guesses what that means, animal. Animal. Exem exemplar, exemplaris, example. Mm -hmm. And mare, maris, sea, which is where we get marine from. Marine has to do with sea life. Maritime. Maritime. Marine biology. Uh, maritime dealing with the sea. Uh, having to do mm -hmm. with the sea. Okay. Very good. All right. So you got some exercises here, both on uh, numbers and on this, and you can do them as you wish for homework. Now, I just wanted to look at a couple sentences. Uh, I call these basic sentences, but they're really not. Uh, these are just sentences to help us read some things we're going to read in the next couple of weeks. So let's look at these a minute. Try to remember, try to learn the meaning of them. And uh, if you can learn the meaning of them, then you'll be able to read what I'm going to give you to read in a couple of weeks. Here's a sentence. Here's a couple of sentences. Number one, Serpentes timeo, eos magnopere odi. I'm afraid of snakes. 
I greatly hate them. Okay. Serpentes timeo eos magnopre odi. All right. What's the Spanish word for hate, Carla? It's odiar. Odiar. Okay. It's a funny word in Latin. This word od in Latin is a weird word. It's the perfect tense form, but it has present meaning. And so the pluperfect would be an imperfect meaning, and the future perfect form would be the future meaning. It's a funny verb. It's so. With od. Well, no, the That's freaking odious. Is, something odious. Yeah, it's something okay. hate. Something. Yeah, odious. If you, if something's odious, it's hateful to you. What were you going to say, Beth? The, I was going to say the word for hate is odio, odio, but it's like to odiar is to to hate someone. Yeah, odiar is to like, hate, I, and, and hatred is probably what odio. Odio. Yeah, I or I hate him. I you know yo lo odio. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Now, or you or somebody, you know. right? That would be the first person form. Mm-hmm. Um, in French, it's funny. In French, it's not even related. It's déteste, which is a totally. I don't think French has a uh, a word like od odr. I don't think they do, unless you think of one that I don't don't remember. Mm. Um, okay, number two. Here's another one. Nescio curid faciam. Sid fiere sentio. You got here a subjunctive. Nescio cur id faciam. Faciam is a subjunctive in an indirect question. It says, mm-hmm. I don't know why I do this, but I feel that it is so. Or I feel that it is done. Okay, so that one. Nescio cur id faciam. Sid fiere sentio. Mm-hmm. All right. Number three. Feles amo, quare ad faciam rogas, nescio, said fieri sentio. I love cats. You ask why I do this. I don't know, but I feel that it is so. So, again, same type of sentence. Here's a good one. Nescio quid scribas, said id legere wolo. Again, we got a subjunctive here. I don't know what you're writing. Scribas is a subjunctive. I don't know what you're writing, but I want to read it. Okay. Nescio quid scribas said id lego legere wolo. Uh, and again, I say you'll see some poems with some of this in it. Um, uh, me, sir. Ah, uh, wait a minute, lost place. Perditum ducas quod with des perisse. Okay, let's do that one again. Miser desinas ineptire. Perditum ducas quod with des perisse, which means, wretched one, stop playing the fool, and what you see has perished, consider as lost. Okay. So again, uh, and again, if you can learn these sentences when you see this in a poem, you'll know it. Miser, desinas ineptire, perditum ducas quod vides perisse. There we go. And the last one, I think. Tu, puella, amata nobis quantum abitur nulla. Nec vive miser, nec, nec, nec vive misera. Et obstinata mente perfere et obdura. Huh. Okay. 
And that means, and that means, girl, loved by us, meaning by me, loved by me as much as no girl will ever be loved. Do not live miserable and bear it with an obstinate mind and be firm. And as I said, we'll find out more about what that means later mm-hmm. on. Um, now, I want to talk about, oh, I wanted to sing a couple songs before we do the mythology, because we haven't sung for a while in here. And remember, when we sing the songs, you should mute, because otherwise, <laughs> it'll sound like a din, and we'll deafen poor Herbie here. Uh, but uh, let's see if we can... Uh, Sing, and I thought we would. Uh, I thought we would do a couple of these dog songs again, since this is nice weather, and uh, we have our dogs, and we can enjoy them. Wait a minute, let me get back to the. Sparky beginning. is sitting right here. He'll enjoy. Oh, this. he'll like that then. He'll like that then. Yes, he will. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. Here we go. Where oh where has my little dog gone? This is uh, the very end of your notes after the mythology as your songs. Where, oh, where has my little dog gone? Remember, quo, oh, quo, conis meus est. Quo, oh, quo, restat nunc. Cauda secta et coma held. Oh, quo, oh, quo, restat nunc. See how it goes. So it goes like this. Quo, oh, quo, conis meus est. Quo, oh, quo, restat nunc. Cauda secta et coma held. Oh, quo, oh, quo, restat nunc. Let's do it again. Quo, o quo, canis meus est. Quo, o quo, restat nunc. Cauda secta et coma held. O quo, o quo, restat nunc. I love the translation of that last part. The song really says something like with a short tail and short hair or something. In the Latin, it says with a cut tail and no hair at all. <laughs> Not at all any hair. Uh, anyway, it's just funny. Okay. How much is that? Doggy in the window. Quantest, you have to say quantest. Quantest ille canis in finestra, ille cumoente cauda. Quantest ille canis in finestra, ille um, spero illum wendibilem. Okay, so it goes like this. Quantest ille canis in finestra, ille cumoente cauda. Quantest ille canis in finestra, spero illum wendibilem. Iter California faciendum, edamantem relinquam domum, or solum, sorry. Si habebit canis, non erit miser, et canis habebit domum. By the way, here's a question you can ponder. If you look at that song, you can tell that the person singing it is a woman. Well, maybe not today, but normally, if you looked at it, you could tell the person singing this song is a woman. Patty Page sang it in English. How can we tell that from the Latin, that a woman is singing this about a man? And you have 20 minutes. Oh, thank you. I do hope that dog is for sale. No, but the Latin wouldn't show that. There's one okay. word in here that shows it. Miser says, if he had a dog, he wouldn't be unhappy. 
And if it was a girl you were singing about, you would say misera. But mm. since it's a uh, since it's a guy, it's miser. Mm. Okay, I thought we would do our old friend Argos again one more time. Agricola conim habe bat quinomen erat Argos. Remember that? Agricola conim habe bat quinomen erat Argos. Ah er geus ah er geus ah. Air get USA nomen erat Argus Agricola conim have a bot gooey nomen erat Argus Ah air get you Ah air get you Ah air get you A nomen erat Argus Agricola conim have a bot gooey nomen erat Argus Ah air get Ah air get Ah air get A nomen erat Argus Agricola conim have a bot gooey nomen erat Argus Ah air Ah air Ah air a nomen erat Argus, a Greek laconum, have a bat quinomen erat Argus, ah, ah, ah. A nomen erat Argus, a Greek laconum, have a bat quinomen erat Argus. A nomen erat Argus. That's a little fast for me. Okay, mythology. Homecomings. How much is the overall over pocket? Quarter second, eight comments. Wait, wait, I want, can I back up a minute? You can. What what's that thing you said about what word was feminine? Now I said you can tell a woman is singing this song because she says if he had a dog, he wouldn't be miserable. And the word for miserable, talking about her her lover, is me there. And so you can tell a woman is talking about a guy in that song. Oh, her love. That's all you were saying. Oh. That's all. Okay, saying. I just couldn't quite keep up. Okay. Oh, that's all right. I probably didn't say it right. Now, I want to talk uh, today about uh, Ulysses' homecoming in particular. These homecomings are interesting, as I said before. There are several stories about people, people coming home after the Trojan War, especially Greeks, like the most interesting one is the Ulysses story, but of course Agamemnon went home and got axed to death in the bath, as we said. Uh, and these homecomings may represent something true, which really happened. And that is when some of the Greeks got back from the Trojan War, the Dorians had invaded at that point. And when they came back, they may have indeed found that things were quite different in their homes than they were when they left. And they may have had some difficult times. And maybe this is a kind of a mythological way to reflect some of the difficulties that people had after the Trojan War. Who knows? Um, this uh, homecoming of Ulysses is told about in Homer's book called The Odyssey. It's called The Odyssey because it's really about a man named, we call him Ulysses. In Greek, they call him Odysseus. The Latin name is Ulysses. The Greek name is Odysseus. And so they call it an Odyssey. But the word has gotten to be used in English to mean any long and complicated adventure that people go on. And so you might, you might say, well, well, I was going to go to California, and that turned out to be quite an Odyssey meaning maybe I had to go out of my way or we had car trouble and we didn't get there when we thought we were or whatever, you know, it means a long trip. And sometimes the long trip is more important or interesting or fruitful or productive than when they really get there. 
Uh, I don't know if that makes sense or not. Like sometimes people try to go somewhere and, and the, the going that the process of going turns out to be more interesting than the actual outcome, the actual homecoming. But anyway, that's, that's for you to decide. The, the odyssey uh, is um, I go again, Homer's second work. And it starts out for a long time. When you start reading the odyssey, you don't know where Odysseus is. When you start out reading it, you're, you're presented in the middle of the scene. It's the 20th year since Odysseus has been home because he left home, spent 10 years in Troy fighting for Troy, and then Troy fell, and then it's taken him 10 years to get back home. He had a very young wife and a very young son when he left, and by now his son has grown up enough that he's going to go look for his father. Meanwhile, a whole bunch of uh, bums, you might say, have come into his house, have tried to uh, get his wife to marry them, not because they particularly love her, but because they want Ulysses' wealth. And they're hanging around, eating his food, drinking his wine, and hoping that they can get her to marry one of them, and hoping that if they stay long enough, she'll pick one of them. And while that's going on, Telemachus, who's Ulysses' son, goes and looks for him, but doesn't find him. And so several books are taken up with the search for him. And, uh, and nobody quite knows where he is, but where he is, we'll find out in a bit. He's on an island where he's being kept a prisoner by a goddess. That's where he is, a goddess named Calypso. Um, but meanwhile, let's just take the story from Ulysses' point of view as he's leaving Troy. So he and his men leave Troy. The winners, remember the Greeks won, so he's a winner when he leaves. And so they leave Troy, and they're sailing north from Troy to a place called Samaras. And remember, now, these are Greeks, and they're in Trojan territory. So anything that is Trojan, they have a right to attack, or they, they're like pirates in a way. They can just attack. And so they attack these people called the Samarians. Uh, uh, they win. But the next day, the people attack them, and several of Ulysses' men are killed. And so he goes on. So that wasn't what you might call the most uh, uh, successful venture. You have Siconians in here. They attack. Well, the, the people are called the Siconians. The country is called the Samar is called Samaris. Yes, you're right. The Siconians are the people. Don't ask me why they're called the Siconians living in Samaris, but that's what they're called. I don't know why. Okay, now Ulysses has one of the most interesting uh, adventures. He, they move southward uh, toward the Aegean Sea, and they're going to try to go across the Mediterranean to North Africa. And they end up visiting this place, and Ulysses sends some of his men ashore, and they don't come back. He sends them ashore to find out who the people are living there, and they don't come back. So he sends a few more men, and they don't come back. So finally, he decides to go himself and find out what's going on. When he gets there, what he finds is there are all these people just sitting around what we would call grooving. That's all they're doing. And it turns out there is a fruit on this in this land called a lotus. 
And these people spend their time eating the lotus. And when they eat the lotus, they forget everything else except eating the lotus. So these are the first drug abusers on record, you could say. And in fact, it seems to me I've heard that there is a group in modern times called the lotus eaters who are drug users uh, of some sort. Of some sort. Um, and so Ulysses realizes that, you know, if he eats the lotus, he's going to be in the same boat they're in. He's going to just forget everything and just sit there and spend the rest of his life eating the lotus fruit. So what he finally does is he kind of gets his men to grab the guys that are on the island already that have gotten stoned out of their mind on the lotus. He forces them on the ship and takes them away from there and, uh, I guess, forces them to quit cold turkey, you might say, uh, and then sails away. I, I find this adventure very interesting. Um, and I don't know that there's any other, I don't know that there's any other story exactly like this. But what it would, what it would show me is there must have been somewhere uh, in the world where people were living on drugs or were very deeply into drugs. Maybe this lotus was like opium or something. I don't know. It, it, you know, you don't hear about it. I don't remember ever hearing it anywhere else. But the fact that this story exists, uh, I would think that there's some, some ray of truth in it. Uh, and where, I don't know. So it's, it's an interesting story. Okay, they go north, they run aground, uh, and Ulysses leaves most of his men there. Why, I don't know. I guess to keep them safe while they run aground. And he crosses to another place where he has another very interesting adventure. And you know this adventure. If you were ever in eighth grade, you probably read this story in your eighth grade reader, or maybe in your ninth grade reader. Uh, Ulysses and his men, a few of his men that he's got with him, they go into a cave and they see all this, there's sheep in there and there's cheeses and milk and things in there to show that a shepherd lives in this cave. And while they're in there, all of a sudden they hear this loud noise and they look up and there's this giant who's come into the cave. And this giant is what we would call a cyclops. What is a cyclops? He's a one-eyed giant. He has one great big eye in the middle of his forehead, which is where you get the name Cyclops, round, round eye. Uh, and this guy is uh, very uncivilized, shall we say. He brings his flocks in. He has, he's a shepherd. He brings his flocks into the cave, closes the cave up with a rock, and asks who these people are. And when they tell him, he figures, well, this is really good. I've got an endless supply of food. And so he, uh, he grabs a guy and smashes him on the ground. Talk about violence in, uh, in, in TV, you know, smashes him on the ground and eats him raw right there. And Ulysses, uh, kind of being the brave brash guy that he is says, look, uh, Aren't you going to give me a gift that a stranger usually gets when he comes to visit someone? The guy said, I'll give you one. I'll eat you last. That's the gift I'll give you. And so the next day he leaves and puts the rock in the cave again so the men can't escape, takes his flocks out. 
and then comes back in the evening and smashes another guy and eats him. The same thing happens. However, Ulysses gets an idea. He's got to get rid of this guy somehow, this giant. So while the giant is gone, they find some wood in the back of the cave, and they take this one real sharp piece of wood, and they trim it down and make it real sharp on one end, and then they lay it in the fire to get hot. And then when the Cyclops comes back and eats another man, Ulysses happened to just have some wine with him. So he gets out this wine and says, would you like to try some of our wine? And of course, the Cyclops thinks this is wonderful. And he starts drinking all this wine. And I guess he's not too used to wine. So he drinks and drinks and drinks and gets rip roaring drunk. In fact, they have a, they have a picture of him in the Odyssey. He, he's laying back in the cave, belching pieces of gore and all out of, it, out of his mouth and just laying there totally sound asleep. Meanwhile, uh, before he goes to sleep, he asks Ulysses what his name is. He says, I want to, I appreciate what you've given me this wine. What's your name? And Ulysses says, my name is No Man. And that's going to prove to be important. So they take this piece of wood that they've heated up and they all gather around and they bore it into his eye. Again, violence. Violence is nothing new, man. Look at it right here in the Odyssey. I remember reading this in eighth grade and getting almost sick. They take this hot piece of wood and bore into his eye, and you can hear the eyeball pop as the hot uh, piece of wood goes into his eye. Oh. It's, it's quite graphic, the way it's written in the Odyssey, quite graphic. And I have a feeling if you read it in Greek, which I have, and it's even more graphic. I'm sure they have all the sounds of the eyeball popping as that hot <laughs> piece of wood goes in there. The Cyclops jumps up and bellows real loud. And all the other Cyclops come around and say, what's the matter with you? What's wrong? Are you all right? And he says, no man hurt me. No man has really hurt me. And they say, well, if no man's hurt, you can shut up and go to sleep. And they leave. <laughs> well, the next day. And, and by the way, th this story is, is interesting for another reason. This is one of the first examples of a locked room mystery or whatever you want to call it. You know, one of the funs about a locked room is how does someone get out of a locked room, right? Okay. You've got this same thing right here because the Cyclops then moves the stone out of the way and sits right in the door, even though he's been blinded now, he's waiting. And as soon as Ulysses or his men come out, he's going to grab them and kill them. Okay. So how is Ulysses and his men going to escape from this cave? It's a locked room, right? How can they escape? How can they do it? Does anyone remember how they do it? They hung on to the bottom of the sheep. Yep, that's exactly what they do. He's got all these sheep in there, and the sheep are coming out. And so Ulysses uh, works out that they tie these little slings under the sheep. They hold on to the wool, and they come out under the bellies of the sheep and the Cyclops is feeling the tops of the sheep as they come out, but he's not feeling under the sheep. And mm. that's where the men are. And there's a real dramatic scene where Ulysses is hanging on to this big ram 
And this big ram comes out kind of slow because he's got Ulysses on the bottom. And the Cyclops stops the ram and says, oh, fella, I think you're sorry for your master. Normally, you'd be the first out of this cave. You're going a little slow today. You're probably (laughs) sorry for me being blinded. I wish I knew where that guy was that did it. And all this time, Ulysses hanging underneath of it, just hoping the ram goes on out. And then, of course, the ram goes out and uh, and uh, they escape. And by the way, this trick still works. In World War II, supposedly, some prisoners escaped from a German prison camp by hanging on the underside of a garbage truck. Oh. And so this trick still works, uh, still has worked in modern times. By the way, uh, this is an important thing because, oh, and by the way, I should mention the Cyclops' name in case you don't know it. Anyone know it? Mm-mm. Polyphemus. His oh. name is Polyphemus. This is a mistake on, in one way, though, because Ulysses has blinded Polyphemus and Polyphemus is the son of Neptune or Poseidon. From you now two on, left. Hmm? Okay, you have okay. two minutes. Okay, we're stopping right here, guys. And so, if you can do your exercises, if you feel like doing them, we'll do them. We'll go over them next week. And next week, if we finish them, we'll look at adjectives. We're talking about gender today. We'll look at adjectives. Okay. Any questions, comments, snide remarks? Okay, I enjoyed having you all. Thank you, Herbie. Did a good job.